Welcome to the Perennials Podcast Book Club. I'm Victoria Russell, and you may have noticed that this episode is a bit longer than previous episodes of the podcast, and that's because for the last 10 chapters of Anne of Green Gables, I decided to invite some friends who have been reading and listening along to come on the show and share some of their reflections on the chapters with me. I've just been hearing a lot of my own voice for 28 chapters now, and I thought it would be a great time to get some new voices and new perspectives on the book. Today's guest is Ruth McCallan. Ruth is my new friend who lives in Edinburgh, Scotland, although soon is moving to Zambia. And Ruth emailed me uh, about listening to the Perennials podcast and then let me know when I started the book club podcast that she was she loves Anne of Green Gables and she was really excited to listen along. And so Ruth and I have emailed back and forth. Um, she always is such a kind, warm presence. She's so thoughtful and she has so many lovely, wise thoughts to share about the book. I was so blown away by some of her insights and I keep thinking about some of the things she said about this book and what she has taken from it. So I can't wait for you to listen to this conversation with Ruth about chapter 29 and some of the upcoming conversations I'll have with friends about chapters to come. And if you want to reach out to me on email, you can always find me at perennialspodcast at gmail.com. Without further ado, here is chapter 29 of Anne of Green Gables by L.M. Montgomery. Chapter 29, An Epoch in Anne's Life. Anne was bringing the cows home from the back pasture by way of Lover's Lane. It was a September evening, and all the gaps and clearings in the woods were brimmed up with ruby sunset light. Here and there, the lane was splashed with it, but for the most part it was already quite shadowy beneath the maples, and the spaces under the firs were filled with a clear, violet dusk like airy wine. The winds were out in their tops, and there is no sweeter music on earth than that which the wind makes in the fir trees at evening. The cows swum placidly down the lane, and Anne followed them dreamily, repeating aloud the battle canto from Marmion, which had also been part of their English course the preceding winter, and which Miss Stacy had made them learn off by heart, and exulting in its rushing lines and the clash of spears in its imagery. When she came to the lines, the stubborn spearsmen still made good their dark impenetrable wood, she stopped in ecstasy to shut her eyes that she might the better fancy herself one of that heroic ring. When she opened them again, it was to behold Diana coming through the gate that led into the berry field, and looking so important that Anne instantly divined there was news to be told. But betray too eager curiosity she would not. "'Isn't this evening just like a purple dream, Diana? It makes me so glad to be alive. In the mornings I always think the mornings are best, but when evening comes I think it's lovelier still.' "'It's a very fine evening,' said Diana. "'But, oh, I have such news, Anne. Guess. You can have three guesses. "'Charlotte Gillis is going to be married in the church after all, "'and Mrs. Allen wants us to decorate it,' cried Anne. "'No, Charlotte's beau won't agree to that, "'because nobody ever has been married in the church yet, "'and he thinks it would seem too much like a funeral. "'It's too mean, because it would be such fun. Guess again. "'Jane's mother is going to let her have a birthday party?' "'Diana shook her head, her black eyes dancing with merriment. "'I can't think what it can be,' said Anne in despair. "'Unless it's that Moody Spurgeon MacPherson saw you home from prayer meeting last night, did he?' "'I should think not,' exclaimed Diana indignantly. "'I wouldn't be likely to boast of it if he did, the horrid creature. "'I knew you couldn't guess it. 
Mother had a letter from Aunt Josephine today, and Aunt Josephine wants you and me to go to town next Tuesday and stop with her for the exhibition. There. Oh, Diana, whispered Anne, finding it necessary to lean up against a maple tree for support. Do you really mean it? But I'm afraid Marilla won't let me go. She will say that she can't encourage gadding about. That was what she said last week when Jane invited me to go with them in their double-seated buggy to the American concert at the White Sands Hotel. I wanted to go, but Marilla said I'd be better at home learning my lessons, and so would Jane. I was bitterly disappointed, Diana. I felt so heartbroken that I wouldn't say my prayers when I went to bed. But I repented of that and got up in the middle of the night and said them. I'll tell you said Diana. We'll get mother to ask Marilla. She'll be more likely to let you go then, and if she does, we'll have the time of our lives, Anne. I've never been to an exhibition, and it's so aggravating to hear the other girls talking about their trips. Jane and Ruby have been twice, and they're going this year again. I'm not going to think about it at all until I know whether I can go or not, said Anne resolutely. If I did and then was disappointed, it would be more than I could bear. But in case I do go, I'm very glad my new coat will be ready by that time. Marilla didn't think I needed a new coat. She said my old one would do very well for another winter, and that I ought to be satisfied with having a new dress. The dress is very pretty, Diana, navy blue and made so fashionably. Marilla always makes my dresses fashionably now, because she says she doesn't intend to have Matthew going to Mrs. Lynde to make them. I'm so glad. It is ever so much easier to be good if your clothes are fashionable. At least, it is easier for me. I suppose it doesn't make such a difference to naturally good people. But Matthew said I must have a new coat, so Marilla bought a lovely piece of blue broadcloth, and it's being made by a real dressmaker over at Carmody. It's to be done Saturday night, and I'm trying not to imagine myself walking up the church aisle on Sunday in my new suit and cap, because I'm afraid it isn't right to imagine such things. But it just slips into my mind in spite of me. My cap is so pretty. Matthew bought it for me the day we were over at Carmody. It is one of those little blue velvet ones that are all the rage, with gold cord and tassels. Your new hat is elegant, Diana, and so becoming. When I saw you come into church last Sunday, my heart swelled with pride to think you were my dearest friend. Do you suppose it's wrong for us to think so much about our clothes? Marilla says it is very sinful, but it is such an interesting subject, isn't it? Marilla agreed to let Anne go to town, and it was arranged that Mr. Barry should take the girls in on the following Tuesday. As Charlottetown was thirty miles away, and Mr. Barry wished to go and return the same day, it was necessary to make a very early start. But Anne counted it all joy, and was up before sunrise on Tuesday morning. A glance from her window assured her that the day would be fine, for the eastern sky behind the firs of the haunted wood was all silvery and cloudless. Through the gap in the trees, a light was shining in the western gable of Orchard Slope, a token that Diana was also up. Anne was dressed by the time Matthew had the fire on and had the breakfast ready when Marilla came down, but for her own part was much too excited to eat. After breakfast, the jaunty new cap and jacket were donned, and Anne hastened over the brook and up through the firs to Orchard Slope. Mr. Barry and Diana were waiting for her, and they were soon on the road. It was a long drive, but Anne and Diana enjoyed every minute of it. It was delightful to rattle along over the moist roads in the early red sunlight that was creeping across the shorn harvest fields. The air was fresh and crisp, and little smoke-blue mists curled through the valleys and floated off from the hills. Sometimes the road went through the woods, where maples were beginning to hang out scarlet banners. Sometimes it crossed rivers on bridges that made Anne's flesh cringe with the old, half-delightful fear. Sometimes it wound along a harbor shore and passed by a little cluster of weather-gray fishing huts. Again it mounted to hills, whence a far sweep of curving upland or misty blue sky could be seen. But wherever it went, there was much of interest to discuss. It was almost noon when they reached town, and found their way to Beechwood. 
It was quite a fine old mansion, set back from the street in a seclusion of green elms and branching beeches. Miss Barry met them at the door with a twinkle in her sharp black eyes. "'So you've come to see me at last, you Anne girl,' she said. "'Mercy, child, how you've grown. You're taller than I am, I declare, and you're ever so much better looking than you used to be, too. But I dare say you know that without being told.' "'Indeed I didn't.' said Anne radiantly. I know I'm not so freckled as I used to be, so I've much to be thankful for, but I really hadn't dared to hope there was any other improvement. I'm so glad you think there is, Miss Barry. Miss Barry's house was furnished with great magnificence, as Anne told Marilla afterwards. The two little country girls were rather abashed by the splendor of the parlor where Miss Barry left them when she went to see about dinner. "'Isn't it just like a palace?' whispered Diana. "'I never was in Aunt Josephine's house before, and I'd no idea it was so grand. I just wish Julia Bell could see this. She puts on such airs about her mother's parlor.' "'Velvet carpet,' sighed Anne luxuriously. "'And silk curtains. I've dreamed of such things, Diana, but do you know I don't believe I feel very comfortable with them after all. There are so many things in this room and all so splendid that there is no scope for imagination.' That is one consolation when you are poor. There are so many more things you can imagine about. Their sojourn in town was something that Anne and Diana dated from for years. From first to last, it was crowded with delights. On Wednesday, Miss Barry took them to the exhibition grounds and kept them there all day. It was splendid, Anne related to Marilla later on. I never imagined anything so interesting. I don't really know which department was the most interesting. I think I liked the horses and the flowers and the fancy work best. Josie Pye took first prize for knitted lace. I was real glad she did, and I was glad that I felt glad, for it shows I'm improving, don't you think, Marilla, when I can rejoice in Josie's success? Mr. Harmon Andrews took second prize for Gravenstein apples, and Mr. Bell took first prize for a pig. Diana said she thought it was ridiculous for a Sunday school superintendent to take a prize in pigs, but I don't see why, do you? She said she would always think of it after this when he was praying so solemnly. Clara Louise McPherson took a prize for painting, and Mrs. Lynde got first prize for homemade butter and cheese, so Avonlea was pretty well represented, wasn't it? Mrs. Lynde was there that day, and I never knew how much I really liked her until I saw her familiar face among all those strangers. There were thousands of people there, Marilla. It made me feel dreadfully insignificant. And Miss Barry took us up to the grandstand to see the horse races. Mrs. Lynde wouldn't go. She said horse racing was an abomination, and she, being a church member, thought it her bounden duty to set a good example by staying away. But there were so many there, I don't believe Mrs. Lynde's absence would ever be noticed. I don't think, though, that I ought to go very often to horse races, because they are awfully fascinating. Diana got so excited that she offered to bet me ten cents that the red horse would win. I didn't believe he would, but I refused to bet because I wanted to tell Mrs. Allen all about everything, and I felt sure it wouldn't do to tell her that. It's always wrong to do anything you can't tell the minister's wife. It's as good as an extra conscience to have a minister's wife for your friend. And I was very glad I didn't bet, because the red horse did win, and I would have lost ten cents. So you see, that virtue was its own reward. We saw a man go up in a balloon. I'd love to go up in a balloon, Marilla. It would be simply thrilling. And we saw a man selling fortunes. You paid him ten cents, and a little bird picked out your fortune for you. Miss Barry gave Diana and me ten cents each to have our fortunes told. Mine was that I would marry a dark-complected man who was very wealthy, and I would go across water to live. I looked carefully at all the dark men I saw after that, but I didn't care much for any of them, and anyhow, I suppose it's too early to be looking out for him yet. Oh, it was a never-to-be-forgotten day, Marilla. I was so tired I couldn't sleep at night. Miss Barry put us in the spare room, according to promise. It was an elegant room, Marilla, but somehow sleeping in a spare room isn't what I used to think it was. 
That's the worst of growing up, and I'm beginning to realize it. The things you wanted so much when you were a child don't seem half so wonderful to you when you get them. Thursday, the girls had a drive in the park, and in the evening, Miss Barry took them to a concert in the Academy of Music, where a noted prima donna was to sing. To Anne, the evening was a glittering vision of delight. Oh, Marilla, it was beyond description. I was so excited I couldn't even talk, so you may know what it was like. I just sat in enraptured silence. Madame Selitsky was perfectly beautiful and wore white satin and diamonds. But when she began to sing, I never thought about anything else. Well, I can't tell you how I felt, but it seemed to me that it could never be hard to be good anymore. I felt like I do when I look up to the stars. Tears came into my eyes, but oh, they were such happy tears. I was so sorry when it was all over, and I told Miss Barry I didn't see how I was ever to return to common life again. She said she thought if we went over to the restaurant across the street and had an ice cream it might help me. That sounded so prosaic, but to my surprise I found it true. The ice cream was delicious, Marilla, and it was so lovely and dissipated to be sitting there eating it at eleven o'clock at night. Diana said she believed she was born for city life. Miss Barry asked me what my opinion was, but I said I would have to think it over very seriously before I could tell her what I really thought. So I thought it over after I went to bed. That is the best time to think things out. And I came to the conclusion, Marilla, that I wasn't born for city life, and that I was glad of it. It's nice to be eating ice cream at brilliant restaurants at 11 o'clock at night once in a while, but as a regular thing I'd rather be in the East Gable at 11, sound asleep, but kind of knowing even in my sleep that the stars were shining outside, and that the wind was blowing in the firs across the brook. I told Miss Barry so at breakfast the next morning, and she laughed. Miss Barry generally laughed at anything I said, even when I said the most solemn things. I don't think I liked it, Marilla, because I wasn't trying to be funny, but she is a most hospitable lady and treated us royally. Friday brought going home time, and Mr. Barry drove in for the girls. "'Well, I hope you've enjoyed yourselves,' said Miss Barry as she bade them goodbye. "'Indeed we have,' said Diana. "'And you, Anne, girl?' "'I've enjoyed every minute of the time,' said Anne, throwing her arms impulsively about the old woman's neck and kissing her wrinkled cheek. Diana would never have dared to do such a thing, and felt rather aghast at Anne's freedom. But Miss Barry was pleased, and she stood on her veranda and watched the buggy out of sight. Then she went back into her big house with a sigh. It seemed very lonely, lacking those fresh young lives. Miss Barry was a rather selfish old lady, if the truth must be told, and had never cared much for anybody but herself.' She valued people only as they were of service to her, or amused her. Anne had amused her, and consequently stood high in the old lady's good graces. But Miss Barry found herself thinking less about Anne's quaint speeches than of her fresh enthusiasms, her transparent emotions, her little winning ways, and the sweetness of her eyes and lips. "'I thought Marilla Cuthbert was an old fool when I heard she'd adopted a girl out of an orphan asylum,' she said to herself, "'but I guess she didn't make much of a mistake after all.' If I'd a child like Anne in the house all the time, I'd be a better and happier woman. Anne and Diana found the drive home as pleasant as the drive-in, pleasanter indeed, since there was the delightful consciousness of home waiting at the end of it. It was sunset when they passed through White Sands and turned into the shore road. Beyond, the Avonlea hills came out darkly against the saffron sky. Behind them, the moon was rising out of the sea that grew all radiant and transfigured in her light. Every little cove along the curving road was a marvel of dancing ripples. The waves broke with a soft swish on the rocks below them, and the tang of the sea was in the strong, fresh air. "'Oh, but it's good to be alive and to be going home,' breathed Anne. When she crossed the log bridge over the brook, the kitchen light of Green Gables winked her a friendly welcome back, and through the open door shone the hearth fire, sending out its warm red glow athwart the chilly autumn night. 
Anne ran blithely up the hill and into the kitchen where a hot supper was waiting on the table. "'So you've got back,' said Marilla, folding up her knitting. "'Yes, and oh, it's so good to be back,' said Anne joyously. "'I could kiss everything, even to the clock. "'Marilla, a broiled chicken? You don't mean to say you cooked that for me?' "'Yes, I did,' said Marilla. "'I thought you'd be hungry after such a drive and need some real appetizing. "'Hurry and take off your things, and we'll have supper as soon as Matthew comes in. "'I'm glad you've got back, I must say. "'It's been fearful lonesome here without you, and I never put in four longer days.' After supper, Anne sat before the fire between Matthew and Marilla and gave them a full account of her visit. "'I've had a splendid time,' she concluded happily, "'and I feel that it marks an epoch in my life. "'But the best of it all was the coming home.'" Ruth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here with you and Anne. Oh, it is so good to have you here and Anne. And I was saying to you before we started recording, but you've been such a wonderful, lovely listener. And I really appreciate you listening and sharing, sharing things with me over email. And um, it's been lovely to, to meet you through the podcast. And when I decided to have some, some people who have been listening and reading along on to um, do some of these reflections together, I was like, oh, Ruth would be perfect because I know that you also shared with me that you love Anne of Green Gables right like you it's one of your favorite books oh one of those childhood hugs when you said you were going to do that I was like (laughs) I have missed this character and I am so ready in my 30s to reconnect with her (laughs) yes I would love to hear do you remember when you first read Anne of Green Gables or um anything about like your first experience reading the book or what it, what it meant to you um, when you were a child? Yeah, it was one of those childhood books that was a shared experience with my sisters. And I think my mom would read like a few chapters a night. Um, and so it's got a very kind of special memory for me um, as a kind of family book that we had. Um, and also I remember then watching the film and watching it over and over and over again Mm -hmm. and just always being in the mood for it and like my sisters were like are you kidding you're offering that again (laughs) I was like yeah like it was something about that I had such traction for it um and I think I had traction maybe for the feeling that I got when maybe my mom and we were reading it um but then also when um Megan follows I think she was the um the actress like I just had such a like association on screen with her as well that I Mm. had a bit of a girl crush I think (laughs) (laughs) yeah which also it's interesting because usually we're attracted to people who have qualities that we would like to develop more in ourselves or does that resonate with you at all Oh, yes. I think um, growing up, I remember, you know, that kind of naive young self of like wanting to be her. Um, And really, like she was one of the like those strong characters in my head that I would almost like level myself against. Um, uh, And she would come into my my head in like situations when I wasn't reading her, whatever. I'd be like, what would Anne do? Or how can I be more Anne? Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, wouldn't it be great to have red hair? <laughs> <laughs> you know, or, and and really, I think it was more that um, 
that kind of intelligence of her as well. Um, and um, I mean that like in the kind of classroom kind of gold star sense that I that I got, but also like the more I think about it, this kind of like emotional intelligence that she developed and like strength of character and um, really knowing herself that maybe I really idealized or wanted to find more in myself. So that really deeply resonates. Mm. Yeah, that's wonderful. And it's it's so funny too because thinking what would Anne do, it's funny because she does make so many mistakes throughout the book seemingly yes. and she's also always judging herself for like doing the wrong thing or she'll feel anxiety about doing the wrong thing. So it's but I I used to be the same way as a kid. I would read books and um for me, it would often be like Hermione Granger and Harry Potter. Like, what would Hermione do? You know, yes. and try and like I like how you put that of kind of measuring yourself against that character. Um, but it's also just interesting because she's an imperfect heroine. But it just goes to show that all of our or a lot of the people that we love and admire and look up to, they're imperfect, and we still can want to emulate them and. Um, and then maybe find some forgiveness for ourselves in that. Like there might be people who look up to us, even though we have our shortcomings, you know? Yes. Oh, completely. And I think um, there was maybe like a, a naughty streak in me that would like love the fact that she dyed her hair green. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was like, yeah, you can't always be good. You know, there was, there was some comfort in her mistakes Um and I think in the large part, I find the mistakes quite kind of innocent type mistakes, you know, yeah. um, and very um, ones that I could associate myself doing and some really honest ones, you know, like some even in this chapter, like there's some um, phrases or things or feelings that she's got that like are undesirable. But like I obviously felt them, too, because I was like, oh, she feels there was some comfort in like that's been revealed that she's not perfect. <laughs> yeah and she even says that she feels good when she finds out that like mrs allen is isn't perfect miss stacy isn't perfect you know and yes um i do love that about the book i think that's part of what makes her a really lovable heroine and not just like a another kind of perfect boring you know, like, yeah um <laughs> you know character yeah yeah i completely feel that and i think um uh, when there is characters that we do not associate so much with is because they're just not multidimensional, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that they're too good. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I totally agree. I I have a couple of questions for like a quick kind of lightning round. Um, so my first question is which care, which character or characters do you identify with most strongly. And so I know you've talked a little bit about looking up to Anne and seeing some similarities there, but do do you have anything else you would, you would say about which character or characters you feel connected to or similar to? Yeah. Um, that is, uh, um, it, yeah, that's an interesting question for me because it's always been about Anne. <laughs> so, yeah. and and um, I, that's not just, I guess, because she's a protagonist, but also just because there was this, I was at that maybe influential a- um, age where I just mm-hmm. really kind of saw her, you know? Um, but I do remember 
um, being really um, intrigued about what it would like, like be like to be Diana mm. um, and to be her best friend, you know? Um, and at times I wanted Diana to have more airtime, you know, mm -hmm. and to get to know more about her and her um, kind of raven black hair. I remember that was something <laughs> that I, you know, um, and to see really more about her story because you don't, even up until now, you know, you don't get to know loads about her, you know? Yeah. So there's a curiosity there that I was interested in Diana a bit more. I'm curious too, what is your favorite Anne mess up? Like what is your, what is your favorite thing that she, that she does that uh, she gets in trouble for or regrets or everyone looks at her and thinks she's crazy? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, 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 it is the green hair. Mm -hmm. um, but the green hair is for multi-layered reasons is I remember uh, I, I was never allowed to dye my hair. I was never allowed to dye my hair. Uh, I think my mom was very much like, you know, trying to get everything natural and like, why would you want to and that kind of thing. And I couldn't believe that Anne had the guts to do it, even although I'm sure Marilla would have said no, but she still did it anyway. And <laughs> I just, I, I enjoyed the, like the naughtiness of her doing it. Um, but also in the reread as well, like I really associated her talking to this peddler guy um, and how I've been caught out as well. Um, you know, just like wanting to help somebody. So then you have to buy something mm -hmm. um, or, you know, being too curious in their story. And then, you know, almost... I don't know if he tricked her or, you know, you know, I'm not entirely sure whether, you know, he just wanted her money or he just, you know, for his own reasons. But I, I just felt like I was really could have been susceptible to that myself um, of really, really getting engrossed into another story and then trying to be the lifesaver or a helper by buying something. Um, so that kind of really resonated with me, too she's a little bit naive but very well-meaning in that yes yeah I have really um sometimes merged like enmeshed myself in someone else's story you know a bit too much and then um and there is a naivety in that but and a beautifulness in that too you know um and so I think that's why it's sort of steeped in meaning for me um like because she actually had the guts then to then just go away and do it as well <laughs> I was just sad for her that it was green I know do you have a favorite lesson or piece of wisdom that you've taken from the book I think one of the strongest things that comes to me when I think of the story is um a sense of really like I can see throughout the chapters and developing an inner adult you know mm. and it's something that I you know still have to do to this day and still something I'm learning of like this kind of um this kind of sense of guidance and knowing about yourself you know a sense of accepting yourself accept of knowing yourself um, and it comes with time and experiences and mistakes and joys um, but this kind of um, guidance that comes from within I feel like is developed throughout the book and I just love getting to know it and seeing it grow in somebody else that I can witness 
that's really beautiful and a very good segue into this chapter, I think, because yeah, it's kind of, I feel like as we've gotten deeper into the book, Anne is growing up a little bit more. And so she's having new experiences. She's, um, you know, she kind of goes out into the world in a different way for the first time in this chapter. And we do hear her kind of, uh, she does notice things about herself and become more aware of certain things that she likes and doesn't like. And so I yes. feel like that's a really good segue yes. um, into the chapter. At one point, Anne kind of has this realization that as you grow up, you realize that the things that you fantasized about or imagined are never quite as good as you imagined that they would be. Yeah. Like I, I find it so fascinating that she goes to the city for the first time and she's kind of expecting herself to just be totally in love with it, I think. And knowing Anne and like how she loves excitement and all of that, you might expect that she would be so enraptured with the city and just want to like pack her bags and move there or something. But she is kind of like, huh, this isn't actually quite what I thought it would be. And I think I'm kind of a country girl at heart. So kind of like you pointed out, getting to know herself a little bit, but also that like disillusionment of growing up and realizing that, especially for such a romantic dreamer type, it's very hard for real life to ever, even if it's great, really be, it can never be exactly what you were imagining because what you were imagining wasn't real, right? Yeah, yes. Yes, so I think the quote exactly is, the things you wanted so much when you were a child don't seem half so wonderful to you when you get them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, yes, I've, I've underlined that as well. Just going, my goodness, that kind of um, anticipation of, of, of just growing up and like how long it feels when you're young to like grow up that um, it is almost like slightly disappointing then when she, when she, got to the end or the finish line of what that was. Um, and it is, it is the, a very difficult thing about growing up is when you, you realize that um, it might not be what you wanted, you know, or what you thought it was. And I think it's about the kind of holding of disappointment through that. I noticed that, you know, with the whole countryside you know, the, yeah, she's sort of getting to know herself a little bit, isn't she? Of, of when she gets asked the question um, whether she, you know, is she a city person or is she a country person? Um, and she needs to rest on it a bit because it, I guess it's a bit of a new experience going to the city and seeing this exhibition and um, the horse racing and all of this kind of um, lots of stimulation and action and things happening that is exciting and eating ice cream up late and... Um, there's something where, um, like you said, there was this assumption that through her excitement, she would be like born for city life. Um, but then I love, I love how she sleeps on it because she just can't answer the question because yeah. she's just got too much to, <laughs> to, to like weigh up. And like, it's just so beautiful that she has to, you know, she really is so thoughtful in her responses. And so she needs to sleep on it. Um, and, and also again, uh, kind of like she knows that that's the best time for her to think things through um, it's just that time before bed um, which I just thought was like 
a lovely sense of maturity. Um, and I think there's references throughout this whole chapter about how different times of the day can be of service or um, can aid you. Um, if it's like waking up really early in the morning for some freshness or whether it's, you know, thinking before bedtime or, you know, that kind of stuff. I feel like she holds on to parts of the day um, and kind of separates her time in that way, um, which is um, mature and um, something I'm learning as well, that I can um, have time that I'm like more peak and times that I'm a bit more depleted and that's kind of goes through different hours of the day. Um, and I think there's something um, about even just labeling yourself. It's quite scary to label yourself either as city or mm -hmm. country, isn't it? I've, I've often found that even when people ask me in, in, in my life, are you a city person? Or are you a country person? Uh, and it's like both. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but like, it's also, it's a maturity when you decide what it is about the city life or the country life that you affiliate yourself with and what is important to you. Um, and I, I think the kind of Avonlea Anne is coming more, um, she's beginning to really find belonging there um, and a sense of value with like nature and what that offers her, um, it, what fills her up um, really like her energy source comes from the country so that she can visit the city, you know? I think that too points to some of that maturity because it's not all or nothing. It's not a country girl who's terrified to ever leave the country and visit the city. And it's yeah. not, I need to live here. It can be, I can enjoy this in a certain amount and then I can go home, you know? And that also is, um, because there are, like you said, we have all these different parts of ourselves. So there might be a part of her that wants to experience that now and then, but it doesn't have to be the whole. Yes. Yeah. And it's also like, she's, you know, she's young, you know, yeah. and, and, and that's why we keep using the word mature because there's like, that's, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily change, you know, that kind of like an evolution of you and like, um, you know, I had to, I had to go to London, you know, to like do London to see London, you know, but I don't think it was very good for me, you know, mm. <laughs> but I sort of had to learn that way, you know, to, to try and have my cake and eat it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And the vulnerability, um, towards the end of the chapter and at the end of the trip when she, you know, kisses Mrs. Barry, right? Oh, I just loved it. I just think, um, I, I think there's a small part of me that I see in that too, of like, there's, there is quite a lot of rules and, you know, graces that you need to, you know, be, you know, adhere to. And of course she has the magnificent mansion and um, everything is just so splendid and, and perfect really, that you don't really want to mess up your kind of greetings, your meetings and your greetings and your highs and your goodbyes. And, <laughs> and she just, she just breaks the rules to, show hum human like a lovely spirit to her of like I really enjoyed myself I really am grateful to you and here's a big kiss <laughs> um yeah. I just thought it was so I thought it was brave and um and interesting as well of, of you know Diana's reaction which you'd be like I would never ever <laughs> do that you know <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. and also the way that it works on 
Miss Barry because, you know, the narrator tells us that Miss Barry is kind of a selfish old lady and that at first it's like Anne was just amusing to her and kind of like a form of entertainment. And even when Anne is telling Marilla about the trip, she says how Miss Barry would laugh at what she said a lot and she didn't like that. Yes. And I, I really feel for Anne because I know that feeling too. But when Anne does that, you know, uh, Miss Barry, it says Miss Barry found herself thinking less about Anne's quaint speeches than of her fresh enthusiasms, her transparent emotions, her little winning ways, and the sweetness of her eyes and lips. And she says, she starts to think, you know, she thought Marilla Cuthbert was a fool when she adopted a girl, but now she feels like she'd be a better and happier woman if she had. Anne in the house or a child like Anne. And so I love that evolution of Miss Barry too. It's just another example of how Anne's vulnerability and authenticity and kind of like, you know, the way she is with the peddler, just like, you know what, I'm going to lean into my impulse to be empathetic and to believe the best in someone and to just open myself, you know, and someone could take advantage and Miss Barry can laugh at her. But eventually if you have a relationship um, it starts to work on Miss Barry and she realizes, oh, there's like something about her that's not just entertaining, but really deeply like good, you know? Yes. Yeah. And like, I mean, an ode to like one of life's biggest compliments is to have said that about Anne, you know? Yeah. Um, and like, just like to have her at the house all the time would made her a better and happier woman. Um, and like, it's just the influence of Anne. It's like, she she really tapped into something in Miss Berry that like softened her and was able to see goodness um, from being that old selfish woman that you know you just think she's not got it in her to have a hearty like lovely emotional response. <laughs> yeah, I love that. That you're right. What could be? What more could you? hope for than for someone to feel like knowing you or having you in their life makes them better and happier like you really couldn't hope for more yeah it's like it's it really kind of motivates me just to um you know you you have a ripple effect in your life of like how you are I think sometimes you can get a bit overwhelmed about how we can't make change and we can't enforce change and we can't you know there's lots of things of like I'm not powerful enough you know but you have impact in those that you meet and this is like testament to Anne here of like being really able to um almost change someone yeah and we see that because then when she does return to Marilla Marilla has made her this kind of fancy dinner and she says to Anne, which is like, she's come a long way because she actually says to her that it's been really lonely without her. And she says, I never put in four, four longer days. So yes. Marilla has gone from a woman who she wouldn't have said that a couple of years before, you know, so. Oh, yes. Her guard would never have gone down. Yeah. Um, and I really, that really um, kind of affected me in the story too, because I, you just got Marilla missed her you know (laughs) like a lot yeah um and showed it because she you know she she cooked for her you know um 
And she said, yes, I did. And, um, you know, I really wanted something super appetizing for you returning back. And <laughs> um, I was fearfully lonely. You know, it was like she was able to express some of the stuff that she usually kind of tucks down into the scary realms of feelings that she doesn't allow to come through. And I think there was some cracking open at the end here. Yeah. It's like oftentimes, often the chapter the chapters end with Marilla kind of making a snarky comment or saying something yeah. to Anne, like just be quiet and do the dishes or whatever, like making, cracking some sort of joke or something, a sarcastic comment. And this one actually ends with her being earnest and like opening up a little bit. So I loved that. I loved yeah. that ending. So Anne does a lot of daydreaming, as we know, you know, and um, I think like right at the beginning of the chapter, you know, when she's like bringing cows home and she's in that world of herself, you know, there's this daydreaming that that kind of comes into her head and sparks this imagination in her. And um, it just made me think of like a kind of healthy addiction that she's got to daydreaming because it really stimulates her it allows her to have this kind of escapism and um it is like energy in like wellness you know um and I think it just made me think that you know sometimes if I'm in a bit of a spiral or I'm ruminating in like sort of more negative thinking like it's still energy you know that I'm using but just that she uses it in a much more positive way through daydreaming um, and I just thought that might be a helpful way to look at sometimes when you are um, in kind of negative mindset, that sometimes allowing yourself or putting that energy into daydreaming is like maybe a helpful thing. Yeah, it's like the idea of anxiety is all projection about the worst case scenario happening. But like, what if the best case scenario happened? How many yes. of us spend time thinking about that? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And, and imagining, yeah, I I've been so fascinated by how you can use your imagination for in really positive ways. And it's not just something for children. Like there's different types of prayer that use the imagination like um ignatian there's like types of ignatian prayer and spiritual exercises that are literally all about imagining yourself in scripture passages and and um or there's different types of visualizations or meditations where people can really use like their mind's eye and their imagination to feel safe or to notice to to be more creative about their thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Challenge yourself yes. to actually notice, oh, I'm really stuck on the same thoughts. And a lot of them are really negative. And yeah, I can get a little more creative with what I'm thinking about. Yes. And I think it's you're so right of like it kind of why should this imagination imagination kind of stop at the kids thing? It's like feels like, you know, young and youthful and you know, useful when you're young and and we don't really promote it going forward but there's a power in it and there's some untapped force there that I'm um I'm keen to use myself at this imaginal realm um and to like I think it's a practice like you say like a prayer practice or um something to um to use to help your creativity you know mm -hmm. and even just in practical ways like just imagining different possibilities for parts of your life that maybe you've gotten a little stale, like whether it's the clothing that you wear or the 
food that you're cooking. And like, it sometimes takes some imagination to mix yes. things up if that's something that you want to do, you know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, just with you bringing up clothes, there was a, a, a bit of a section in the, the, the chapter about, um, you know, fashion and how, um, she just talks a lot about, she just gets fueled and energized by talking about clothes and mm-hmm. fashion. And, um, you know, Marilla says it's very sinful to do so. And it's kind of, she, she's so reticent to go there because it's kind of laced with guilt because it's like a naughty thing. You know, it's, it's too vain or it's too insignificant to be talking about something that should be, to be practical. And, you know, um, where she, as we know, is sort of romanticized by, by the clothes that she wears um but it just made me think about you know the power of dress and mm-hmm. um how it does make you feel different how, how you are dressed and um and like treating yourself sometimes is like an act of like a self-love thing um uh sometimes particularly if you're like like me that's not really up for dressing up that much like I can feel very feminine if I do make an effort um and it's just sort of tapping into a a, a part of that that it's not that it's like good for you it's like something a bit of self-care that I think that she kind of alludes to when she talks about fashion yeah and I think it can also help us mark different periods of our lives sometimes like I noticed you know I turned 29 this summer and I was like I feel like I need some more adult clothes and I don't mean like (laughs) I need boring clothes. I mean, like I'm wearing a lot, like I've had some clothing since like, I don't even, I don't even want to know when. I mean, I I do. Yeah. (laughs) Middle school, high school. Like, I don't know. I probably, I think I had a pair. Yeah. I had a pair of denim shorts that finally just ripped like right up the butt last summer, (laughs) but I had, I had, I had them from the time I was like 14, I think. So, um, I just was like, you know, as I move into more of an adult stage of my life and kind of, as I become a woman, you know, in a new way, um, like what, how do I want that to reflect in what I wear and how I carry myself? I do often also dress very casually and and also just, yeah, the idea of expressing yourself. And I love Anne's spirituality because I feel like it's so linked with beauty. And I feel like without all of the emphasis on like sin and, you know, yeah. oh, we shouldn't like just denial of worldly things, you could really see the beauty of like, well, God gave us all these beautiful colors and the flowers. Like, why not wear some of these colors sometimes in a n- yes. nice dress, you know? Yes. So, yeah, there is a link there to, yeah, it's just a strong link to beauty and it's okay to feel beautiful, you know? Yeah. I love that you brought that up because I had, yeah, I had forgotten about that part, but it did strike me as I was reading it too. There's such a paradox of Anne, and I noticed it's a lot in this chapter, of this kind of sense of daydreaming that she, that she really loses herself um, on completely different tangents. And um uh, when she's like, you know, walking or, you know, this kind of like mindfulness thing that she just gets lost in her world. Um, as well as like being so present with everything that she sees. Um, and like, 
you know, the journey that she goes on, I'm just a little bit like, she's so present with like nature and what the sun is doing and the sunlight and the movement of things and the bridges and the rivers and just really daydreaming. You think you're not in the moment. And yet I feel like she is so tapped into every second, you know? (laughs) Yeah. No, it's a really good point. I feel like Anne does have so many paradoxes in her and that is that is such a good point that because she is so observant, she notices everything, she picks up on nuances. Yeah. Yeah. Like whether it's her physical surroundings or people's behavior, like we catch her, she's always noticing things about people's behavior. And um, so it's true. She does, there's something very ethereal, yet also very much in this world about yeah. her. Yeah. Yeah. This kind of subtle, like she definitely, she's definitely a feeler. (laughs) Um, and so that was kind of prevalent for me. And, um, I think there's, um, you know, there's a little section. I just thought it was interesting because it kind of came up, it comes up with me and, and AB basically, um, of when, um, she meets Miss Berry for the first time. And there's this, this kind of you know there's like this nicety conversation at the beginning of like breaking the ice and stuff but whenever you do that in general when people like meet each other there's this thing of you know talking about your appearance you know um and it's like kind of used as an icebreaker um but it's also something I really try to avoid um doing to my little one Mm. because it's um so focused on appearance so you get your compliments like you you, you're so much taller than you've grown so much you're much better looking than I remember she says and you're just like yeah we spend a lot of time talking about the physical you know as opposed to some of the attributes and obviously that changes a lot by the end of the chapter you know where I feel like it was almost irrelevant maybe to bring up but um you know that when you um particularly with kids when you want to compliment a kid doing it with non-appearance of you're so kind or um I just noticed how hard you worked at that or you're such a good listener or something that you can comment on their attributes as opposed to their appearance yeah I I think like people are always telling Anne to be less vain and yet it's like but you made her that way. Like Mrs. Yeah. Lind, the first thing you told her was that she was ugly. And then you tell her to be less vain. So yeah, yeah it's like, why is she so obsessed with her red hair? It's because people have always yes. commented on it. I have a niece named Violet who has bright red hair. And when she was two years old, she was in the grocery store and someone came up to people used to always comment on her hair and this stranger walked up to her and opened her mouth and she just pointed to her hair to her head and said I know red hair <laughs> like she knew she was two years old and she knew that this stranger was going to comment on her appearance so and especially for kids with red hair like and nowadays people say oh it's so beautiful but it's still like I don't think people want to feel like so aware that oh there is something about me that people see before I open my mouth before anything happens and they are noticing it and they're going to point it out you know so it's like that's where her vanity comes from I think and I think too um Brene Brown was talking about parenting and how the way that we greet people and like especially the way that parents greet children 
is so important. I think it was Maya Angelou said that she used to like when her kids walked in the room, say like, oh, you're such a mess. Let me fix your hair, you know? And then she just started saying, I'm so happy to see you, yeah. you know? And there's no value judgment. It's not because of anything you did or didn't do. It's literally like, because you exist and you're here, I'm so happy to see you. And I love that. And I, oh, yeah. it's made me notice, like, how do I greet people? You know? I'm so going to take that phrase with me. Yeah. I love that. And I notice when people do or don't do that with me now, you know? Yes. Yes. It makes me feel like they're just happy to see me, you know? Yeah. Do you know the section where, um, uh, she's talking about like the exhibition and that um, uh, Josie Pye basically got a prize for mm-hmm. um, the knitted lace. And then she said, I, uh, I was real glad she did. And I was glad that I felt glad, but it shows I'm improving. Don't you think Marilla, when I can rejoice in Josie's success. And um, I, I just like that because I um, it's been like an evolution in me as well of like, you know, the kind of scarcity, scarcity mindset versus the abundance mindset. Um, yes. And that just was like, I was like, yeah, I, I think in the past um, I was quite scared to be really, really, truly happy for people because I felt like, you know, it was somehow taking from me or comparing to me or showing my deficiency by being you know and I have like completely grown the other way of just going there is enough to go around and to really be happy for someone is so it's like a a gift to them and a gift to yourself because it just feels good when you really feel it um, and it doesn't take away from you at all. It actually adds to your experience and can even give you evidence that like good things happen all the time and that's not like missing you out. I love that. And I think what you're talking about too is you feel connected to people when you celebrate someone's win or, you know, something yeah. good. It's like you feel more connected, like, we're all in this together and your win is my win. Like anything good is good. Um, you just feel more connected to people and less isolated or separate or competitive. Um, it's like a totally different mindset than the one that I think we are conditioned into. Yeah. Um, but it is really beautiful and that it is really another mark of maturity for Anne and something that also kind of contributes to her feeling so at home, I think, in Avonlea, because the more, the fact that she's celebrating the win of someone that she kind of saw as like maybe an enemy or a frenemy or whatever, shows that she feels connected to that person. Um, And that's beautiful. And I can relate to, I I have struggled a lot at, at times with jealousy and particularly like in my relationships, you know, I would compare myself to other girls or if, you know, if my boyfriend was friends with a girl who was beautiful and, you know, I don't know, sporty or like things that I, you know, wasn't, um, I would feel a lot of jealousy, um, or, and kind of in the vanity piece too, in the same way that we look at kids and, and comment on their appearance, like say my, my boyfriend was in a club at school and, and, you know, I, 
I noticed, oh, this other girl in his club is like so beautiful. And I would just start wanting to find ways to like drag her down a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And when I stopped and went like, well, first of all, I'm just participating in her objectification now. Like I'm participating in the whole system of <laughs> objectifying yeah. girls and reducing them down to what they look like. Even if I'm saying it's, you know, oh, she's so beautiful. Now I want to tear her down. I mean, I'm just participating <laughs> in an awful system and reducing her to her looks. And like, what if I could just look at a beautiful person and go like, wow, what a beautiful person. And like, yeah. wow, how amazing that she has a gift for you know, whatever thing that she's good at instead of like using that as a measuring stick against myself and feeling like I'm failing or not enough in some way because I'm different. Like what if I could, and obviously, you know, my boyfriend was like cheating on me with some beautiful girl. Like it would be a different story, but I'm, (laughs) you know, like, um, but in in your head, yeah. 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 Like when it's totally in your head and you're like primed to not celebrate someone, um, not be happy that they exist or that they're good at something. You know what I mean? Like, like you said, it's such a scarcity mindset as opposed to like, wow, what a beautiful, interesting world that we live in, that this cool person exists. And that doesn't have to take away anything from me or my relationship or what I have or anything. Yeah. It's in fact not linked and it's our growth mindset that's going to allow us to be freed from that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You have some great points. You should have your own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so, I enjoyed tearing this one apart, you know? <laughs> um, I think it's also fascinating for like a, a, a nearly teenaged girl to like be so expressive and really detailed in how was your day, you know? Like mm. the, the kind of story that I get, I, mean, I don't really know that many teenagers now. And, um, you know, I don't know, they have like that nothing happened or, you know, they don't really come back and are so generous with their repertoire of what happened and their recall of the day. It's just, it's such a gift that she gives to Marilla and it's such life that she offers by like remembering these details and taking her on a journey with it. Like, I just find it, fascinating that she has so much to offer in the retelling of her story. That's a really good point because yeah, you're right. The kind of quintessential moody teenager who like doesn't (laughs) want to say anything, doesn't want to answer any questions. Like I think some of that is that Anne, you know how people say like, it takes so much strength to care. Like it's, it's, yes, it's, hard to care and it's vulnerable to share things because what if the other person doesn't listen and they don't care and you know what if you're shut down and I feel like that's part of her being this really strong caring person that she can she'll take the risk of putting herself out there and she's still curious and embracing the world and she does want to connect with people so she is willing to just go for it yeah yeah and there's something very um inspiring with Anne with regards to um you know that kind of like she's so intergenerational like there's it's just it's real sense of like community she can interact with pretty much anyone on their level and not be that intimidated by status age 
culture, you know, she's, she's, she's totally in. Yeah, that's true. I feel like because she has such interest in the world, some people I think like younger people might think older people are boring, you know, yeah. or older people might think younger people don't know anything or whatever, but because Anne is so interested in the world and because she does have an imagination, she's able to, to recognize that other people might have a really rich interior life too. Like she knows, yeah. she knows how, how interesting and complex people can be. And she's, she can imagine that someone might be interesting. And so she wants to get to know them. I think I'm just always impressed by Anne's ability to feel, you know, mm. um, and to let those, you know, the tears come into her eyes when she hears that person singing. Um, and that, you know, she's, she allows herself to like really feel excited before the journey. Um, she allows herself to feel, um, you know, at one point she feels dreadfully insignificant. And so that she just has a, such scope of like allowing all the feelings in the hard ones. the big ones. And I think I'm just on a personal journey of really trying to allow like all the emotions in. Um, and it's just far more colorful and balanced to not just like, stem or stop the bad emotions and just want like the happiness factor you know mm, that's a really good point yeah the the way that she allows herself even though it's like the thing that marilla kind of tried to to dampen in her earlier on is like her excitement because like oh this kid this kid is going to be so disappointed by the world right and what's interesting is she even does let herself feel the disillusionment and yes. let herself feel the disappointment of like, oh yeah, that wasn't as good. Like saying that the worst part of childhood is realizing, you know, or I'm sorry, the worst part of growing up is realizing that things aren't half as wonderful um, once you get them. That's like, could be a really depressing statement, but I, I don't get the sense that she's like gutted by that, you know, because she allows it. She doesn't resist it, right? Yeah, she allows it in and like um it's even reflected in the the um you know Miss Berry's house, you know, with like the silk curtains and she's just dreamt of these things and feeling comfortable and having loads. It just there's also a negative to that of like it's really she didn't love being kind of pampered and adorned and all that because there was no scope for her to imagine it differently, you know? Yeah. And I, I feel like there's something kind of freeing about that for her to realize like, oh, life is actually really good. The life that she has is really good. And all of these like more romantic or sparkly things that she imagines, she doesn't like need them. And they're actually not what they're chalked up to be necessarily. And the fact that she's not so blown away by the more kind of surface level parts of her experience like you know being in that in a really nice house um that the thing that really blows her away is the beautiful singing like that moment yeah. where she um hears the woman singing and she just is like overcome with you know she even says it could never be hard to be good that's like so interesting to me and but i think it just shows it kind of shows her values and her priorities like as much as she wants nice things and pretty things and romance and drama at the end of the day like it's this beautiful art this intangible art that is that has really compelled her and beauty and being like so present in that 
in the beauty of that art. Um, like you said, she's so present. She's just completely enraptured by the music and it's like a spiritual experience for her. And that's the thing that she really, that seems to be the most compelling experience. It's not, you know, the ice cream is great and the house is cool, but those aren't the things that ultimately are most completely. important. I think it's that, um, you know, actually Anne is not striving for perfect, you know, yeah. she's just striving for life. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. (laughs) (sighs) Oh, Victoria, I love this. This was wonderful. (laughs) It's been so fun and so nice to have your thoughts and your perspective. You've picked up on so many things that I, you know, I wouldn't have thought about that way or I wouldn't have noticed. So thank you for your beautiful reading and attention and all of your really wonderful thoughts. I have really enjoyed it and also really enjoyed the level that we've been able to get to, you know, it's like, this is, this is how I like to chat, you know, Yeah, me too. <laughs> I just like, yeah, it's so funny. I'm like terrible at small chat. <laughs> no, me too. I'm the same way. I'm like, can we just start talking about our hopes and fears and (laughs) dreams and all of that. Can we just get to that? (laughs) 